Joshua chapter 15 this evening. Pick things up in our journey through the scriptures. As we come to chapter 15, Joshua is now quite elderly, probably somewhere between uh, 90 and 100 years old, probably closer to 100 years old. He will live to be 110. And the general conquest of the promised land is now completed. They have driven out, uh, broken the back basically of all of their enemies in the land and driven them out for the most part. And now because of Joshua's age, the Lord uh, kind of does a plan where the different sections of the land are to be handed over to the uh, individual tribes who will now uh, take their allotment or their inheritance in the land and they will then be responsible for driving out uh, the final little, uh, you know, mopping up of the final groupings of, of enemies that remain in their territory. And so last week we looked at the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River. They received their allotment. And now this week we take a look at the allotment that God gave of land in the promised land to the individual, uh, the remaining nine and a half uh, individual tribes who settled in the promised land proper in Canaan. And so this was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah according to their families. The border of Edom at the wilderness of Zin southward was the extreme southern border. And so um, the... Uh, uh, if we could put that map up, we can kind of see without me going into all of the specifics of, of reading all the way through verse 12, all of the names and the borders. But you can see up there where Judah is located, down very much in the south. And so one of the reasons that this is of, of some interest to us um, is that later on, when the nation of Israel ends up splitting in two uh, under uh, following Solomon, his reign, his son Rehoboam uh, uh, wanted to continue to oppress the people. It led to a division of the country. So the northern section of Israel, the northern ten tribes, aligned themselves with a man by the name of Jeroboam. And the southern two tribes remained aligned with Rehoboam. And the southern two tribes were the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. So when we read a little bit later on that uh, talking about the, the, um, the, the two uh, parts of, of Israel, northern, we talk about the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel. It's speaking of those ten northernmost tribes. Talk about the southern kingdom of Judah. It was named the southern kingdom of Judah instead of the southern kingdom of Benjamin because Judah was the larger tribe. Uh, though there were the two tribes that um, made it up. It's interesting, you see Simeon down below. We'll uh, get to them in just a little bit. Simeon ultimately um, moves up into the north in Jewish history, and basically their land gets absorbed by Judah in the south, the tribe of Judah, and then their population is uh, absorbed by some of the other tribes. They settle into the areas of other tribes up in the north. And so that's why later on when we read about this division of the kingdom, uh, Simeon's not mentioned at all because long before that takes place, they make some decisions that causes them really to lose uh, significantly their identity as a tribe uh, among the children of Israel. So uh, that gives you an idea of where they're located so we can move down without reading all of the names of the cities and the different borders. You can see it with your eyes and we pick things up in verse 13. A return now to Caleb who we looked at last week known uh, the single great characteristic of his life is biographical statement is that he followed the Lord wholly and so now we get to see um, uh, not only the allotment of the land that was given to him, but now his conquest of that piece of land. Now to uh, Caleb, the son of uh, Jephunneh, he gave a share among the children of Judah. So this area, Caleb's conquest is mentioned in the context of Judah because the land that he requested was in, in the area of Judah. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua and, the, and what was given to Caleb was a place called namely Kirjath Arba, uh, which is Hebron. It came to be known as Hebron. Uh, Arba was the father of Anak. And so, uh, of course, they're going to get rid of the name Kirjath Arba, renamed uh, Hebron. Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there. And remember the uh, 
uh, Anakim, they were giants in the land. Caleb, giants, schmiants, it doesn't matter to him. He's got the promises of God. So he drove out the three sons of uh, of the giant, uh, 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 Shishai, uh, kind of a weird name for a giant, but I wouldn't have said anything to him. So Shishai, uh, Hyman, Talmai, the children of Anak. And then he went up from there to the inhabitants of Debir. Formerly the name of Debir was Kirjath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give Aksa, my daughter, as wife. And uh, so this is uh, uh, those of you who are daughters of uh, brave uh, fathers. Uh, this is, could be kind of a horrifying uh, thing that a father could do, offer your hand in marriage to whoever would conquer uh, one of the significant cities that needed to be conquered there in, in the region given uh, to Caleb. But we know that Caleb wasn't saying, oh boy, this is a tough city, and who can I kind of motivate to take this city? What kind of thing can I offer to them? So Caleb said, oh, you know, a city for a daughter, I mean, it works out pretty good for me. That's not what's happening, because that would really be uh, contrary to this man's uh, godly character as we know him uh, in the Scriptures. By, by providing and, and making this... Essentially what he's doing is he is uh, creating a test for any man who would uh, even hope to have or think of getting his daughter in, in marriage. And so this, uh, any man that could take th this significant city against all the difficulty that they would face would guarantee that the man was a man of great faith, was a man of great valor, and thus worthy of his daughter. So it's kind of a funny way to pick a husband and, uh, for, your, for your daughter, but there's a bit more to it uh, than you realize. I think most of us, when... Uh, somebody, uh, us who have daughters, when some uh, young man comes to us and asks for our daughters uh, to be their wife and permission to marry our daughters in the same way, we have a standard for that. I mean, you have... Uh, are you able to support her? Are you a spiritual person? You know what I mean? So we have our own criteria that we run these people through. And, uh, and so we do that in, in the context of American culture. And in those days, uh, uh, kind of a little rougher uh, way of things. But basically, uh, Caleb is doing the very same thing. He wants to know that he's, he's got a good husband for his uh, his daughter. So a man by the name of Othniel, and remember that guy's name because we're going to move into the book of, of Judges soon and he will become one of the first judges in the nation of, of Israel. So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, so it was uh, Caleb's nephew, he took the city and Caleb gave him uh, Aksaw, his daughter, as wife. And so here they are, they uh, able to... Uh, uh, now this is how they're united in marriage. Now, now it was so, when she uh, came to him, that is Othniel, that she persuaded him, uh, this is a gift that wives have, a uh, gift of persuasion we could call it, and, uh, but it is interesting, the, the, uh, we even see it here, but the tremendous um, influence that a wife has upon a husband. You know, we talk, uh, so often it's rec recognized con you know, concerning the New Testament, how it is the Bible teaches in terms of an authority structure. The husband is over the wife, but most wives are very quick to notice that the wife is the neck, and so she's got a lot more control in there than sometimes you uh, realize. And so w w our wives are very influential in our lives, and, then, and so, uh, so was uh, Akshan. So she convinces Othniel that he should accompany her to ask her father for a field. And so apparently a piece of land had been given to them by Caleb uh, as a wedding gift, a good piece of land, but she's, she's a sharp, she's sharp. 
she realizes in kind of the aridness of that part of the world that she didn't have enough of a water supply associated with that piece of land. So she's going to ask for land that has uh, uh, springs of water to be added to it. Hey, you have not because you ask not. So she's been raised by a dad who's got has a great faith in God and asking God for great things. And so uh, she's been raised in that kind of a household. So she comes to dad and says, listen, what he, all he can say is no. Well, so he did, she didn't really say that, but I mean, she could have been thinking that. So she dismounted from her donkey and her father said to her, what do you wish? And she answered, give me a blessing. Since uh, you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. So give me a water source related to this land. And so he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And so we learn a little bit more about Caleb here, not just in terms of his bravery and wholeheartedness toward God, but he was a, a, a very generous man and, and eager to bless uh, bless his family and bless others, looking out for the next generation. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Judah, according to their families, the cities at the limits of the tribes of Judah toward the border of Edom in the south were, and then now as you head through uh, verse 21 all the way down to 62, there is a listing of the individual cities that were given to the tribe of Judah. Now to us, we look at them and they're just a list of, of cities. But it's kind of an inheritance. It would be kind of like being at wherever you go. That uh, What's the place called where you go and the inheritance is being divided among the family? Is that what it's called? I think, I think we have a better word than this is the place that we go for the inheritance to be divided among the whole family. What's that proceeding called? Anybody? Is that what it's probate? Probate court. Okay. I heard two people say it, the mouth of two witnesses, let every fact be established. So we look at this and it just looks like a bunch of names, but imagine you are in kind of an inheritance or probate kind of situation and then you are hearing the officer begin to lay out the cities or the property that's been given to you. I mean, this is, un this is incredible wealth and prosperity that is being handed over by God to Judah. So they wouldn't have just kind of mindlessly run through the names and all. I mean, this is going to be their future homes. God is really, really uh, blessing them here. So the listing then of all of those uh, cities. Verse 63, very significantly, as for the Jebusites, um, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which was in the area of, of Judah, the children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day, that is the day of, of the writing of, of the book of, of Joshua. So the tribe, of, this is a failure on the part of the tribe of Judah. They did not drive out the Jebusites. They were called by God to drive them out, but rather than obeying God and driving them out, they decided it's not worth the effort, it's, it's too hard, and so they decided we're going to just learn to live with them. Now the parallel that that is in terms of the New Testament walk that we have with the Lord as a Christian is that we, it would be the temptation that we would have to uh, learn to live with sin in our lives, that God has prohibited us to have as a part of our lives, but we think to ourselves, it's not worth the effort, it's too hard, and so I'll obey God 90% here, but I'll keep this sin or two in my life um, because uh, it, it, it's just too much to, to, to drive them out. I'll learn to live with this. And so that's kind of what we've, we've got going on here. Now the passage says that they could not drive them out. And why couldn't they drive the Jebusites out? We know for a fact that it was no fault of God's. It was not that God did not give them the resources that were required to drive out the Jebusites. So it's no lack on God's part. It's a lack on their part. One of the great uh, evidences of this, not only does God stand behind His commandments that He gives to us? He gives us the power to obey His Word. But is the life of Caleb. And this is one of the problems that a Caleb runs into, again, even among God's people. 
because Caleb went in, God gave him commandments. He said, give me the toughest place in the land. I'm going to drive the Anakim out of here. The fact that Caleb was able to do that revealed that God gives the ability, because you remember he asked for that, and he said, if God wills, I'll be able to do this, Joshua. And God was willing. God commanded him to do it. He was able to do it. And, and so here they, they are unable to do it because they're not drawing on God's resources in the way that they, they should have been uh, drawing on them. And so, that, the, again, the problem that Caleb's have is that their life so often brings tremendous conviction to the world, but it also brings great conviction to Christians or to the child of God because their wholeheartedness, the quality of their life that comes out of a wholehearted relationship with God is so much superior to what would be experienced by the rest of the tribe of Judah that then the temptation is, even in the body of Christ today, to dismiss those people as just fanatics. Those are crazy people for God. <laughs> Those are crazy obedient people. And nobody can live... I mean, you can't ask everyone to live like that. I mean, those people are those people. God made them like that, but He didn't make the rest of us like that. We work in that kind of 80-20 thing. We obey Him 80%, and then the 20% that's just too rough to knock out in our life, we just learn to live with. And it's a real temptation for us. The problem is, is that the Christians that we see around us that are walking victoriously, they are uh, caught, their lives speak to us that no, it can be lived, this life can be lived, and uh, wholeheartedness will uh, cause them to possess the, the fullness of, of their possession. So it, 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 they, they could have done it and, and they uh, didn't. And the, and the reason that they couldn't do it here, not because of, of some failure on God, but they lacked the faith to do it, they lacked the obedience to do it, they lacked the willpower uh, to do it. And so that's the reason behind the could not. And, and so it is, the Bible teaches concerning Every single giant in our lives, every single giant sin in our lives that requires great work or great effort on our part to displace that sin from our lives and the power of, of the Holy Spirit is never God's fault. He gives us everything that's necessary to live a godly life. I want you to turn to another passage in the Bible. Hold your place here. But I want you to see it with your own eyes. I've read it a couple times in recent weeks, but I want you to see it with your own eyes. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Way over to the right, near the end of the New Testament. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter writes to us, and he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And here it is. As His divine power, the power of the Holy Spirit, has given to us as Christians all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have from the Holy Spirit everything that is necessary to live a life of godliness and to live the life that God has called us to through the knowledge of Him who has called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so God has given us, and one of the reasons, I don't know, one of the things that I like about the Psalms is that so, in so many of David's Psalms, he talks to himself. I hope you talk to yourself. You will as you get older anyway. You don't care what people think of you after a while. But sometimes spiritually, we've got to talk to ourselves. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, David said to himself. And he's rebuking himself out of that cast down condition. And sometimes when the temptation comes into our lives, it looks and says, you'll never get rid of that. You'll never defeat that enemy. 
I mean, that's not worth the aggravation. That's not worth the effort. That's one you better learn to live with. You can't do it. Sure, I know Joe Schmo over here, he's done it and everything, but he's like in a Caleb category. They're like the, you know, the super duper students. They're an AP, you know. And, and then we're just the rest. You can't put that on yourself. We begin to convince ourselves to li- live an inferior life. And here we can go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 and say, no, it isn't just about Caleb. It's about me. I have from the Holy Spirit everything that I need to live the life that God has called me to, the godly life that God has called me to. And they fail in this area. And so we need, it's very important that we don't learn to live with sin in our, uh, in our lives uh, or, or enemies to God's call upon our lives, but to have the willpower to drive them out. Chapter 16, back in Joshua. Here we have the allotment that, and the inheritance that is given to the tribe of Ephraim. The lot fell to the children of Joseph. And Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So chapter 16 and 17 are going to deal with that allotment. And, and so this fell uh, to the children of Joseph by the Jordan, by Jericho, to the waters of Jericho on the east, to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho through the mountains to Bethel. And then they went out from Bethel to Luz, passed along the border uh, of the Archites to uh, Ataroth, and went westward to the boundary of the Japhethites as far as the boundary of lower Beth-Horon to Gezer, and it ended at the sea. And so the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. Now in verse 5, the formal um, border of the, the tribe of Ephraim is laid out here. And again, you can see the map there. It's located. Mm-hmm. So it's located there in the, there it is, in the central part of, of the land. And so it's a very, very rich uh, part of, of the land of Israel. And then we're told in verse 10, their failure uh, in the same vein, and they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. Now, the children of, of Ephraim, they fail just as the tribe of Judah failed, but they fail for different reasons. And, and so the, the failure of the tribe of Judah was a, a lack of want to. And uh, here, uh, the, the, their failure is caused by a softness in their lives. It's caused really by a covetousness. So they, they look and say, listen, it's going to take a lot of work to knock these Canaanites out of the land. They're really strong. They're strongly entrenched. And you know what? Um, we can make some money off these people. I know God says to drive them out. They have no place in, in my life. But, you know, maybe he hasn't seen this as fully as I have. If we take and we put them, uh, uh, conquer them, subdue them, and make forced labors of them, then we'll be able to make our land better and stronger and greater for God and even faster than we could without them. And it's amazing what we can rationalize in our mind. So they look at it, and it's the same way where we're tempted in business or some kind of a decision where God's Word says dogmatically, tap, tap, no erases, no left, no right, this is what I want you to do and we look at it and say, yeah, but that's going to cost me some money or that's going, to, that's going to put me on a slower track to have this thing happen. God always knows what He's talking about. And He knew for the, the children of Ephraim that no amount of labor that they could ever get out of the Canaanites would be worth what keeping the Canaanites in their midst would ultimately bring to them uh, in, in, their, in their history. So, unlike Caleb, the Ephraimites, they don't follow God wholeheartedly, and they leave the Canaanites in, in their land. Now, here's the problem with all of that. The problem with leaving them in the land is, is they're responsible, number one. If, if, you could, if they could subjugate the Canaanites, they could have driven them out. You have the ability to subjugate a people. You have the ability to displace them and remove them uh, from the land. So there is no good excuse 
for the children of Ephraim not to get this enemy out of their midst. And it's the same, again, the parallel is with sin in our lives, or uh, things that are uh, contrary to God's will in, in our lives. And so uh, for, for them, this, they compromise here for the sake of kind of material wealth or material prosperity. So they could have done it, uh, subjugating them revealed that, that, that they could. The, the other problem here is that if you fast forward this all the way into the book of Judges, which is the next, next book in the Old Testament, we end up seeing the roles reversed. And what we find in the book of Judges is now the Canaanites are back in charge of the land and the children of Israel are in subjection to the Canaanites. The whole thing gets flipped around. And it all began here. It began with this decision. Any decision to disobey God's word, to say, he's not as smart as me in this situation, I'm going to do it my way. I may get away with it for two weeks or two months or two years. It may look like nothing. It may look like this decision isn't going to come back and bite me. Someday it bites me. God knows what He's talking about. He knows what we can allow into our lives and what we are not to allow into our lives. And, and so the whole thing gets turned around. The parallel for us is if we allow any area of sin or the flesh to live in our lives and we say, well, we'll bring it into subjection, we'll control it, uh, we've got the power to do that. The problem is, is that the Bible says that that sin will continue to grow and will never be satisfied until the role is reversed and one day I find myself as a child of God no longer able to control the sin, but the sin now has me subjected to it. James says exactly this when he warns in, in the first chapter of his epistle. He said, let no one say when he, is attempt, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed or trapped. Here it is. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin... And sin, when it's full grown, it grows. You don't keep, you don't control sin. You kill sin or it kills you. That's all there is. Great saying that I heard once and repeated over and over again. The ruthlessness of sin requires ruthlessness with sin. Sin will never say, you're right, you're the big guy. Don't hurt me, don't hurt me. I'll just stay right here in my little 5% of your life. It'll never stay there. It is intent on one thing, taking complete control of our lives and dominating us. So James speaks and he says, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. And then because he does, wants to make the point, because he can almost anticipate that people will say, oh yeah, right, that's what an apostle's supposed to write in the Bible, you know, warnings against sin. I know how to control sin. I know how to keep it in a small area of my life. So James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. That's the ending that it always has. I think that this whole thing with the children of, of Ephraim also warns us against the tendency in the Christian life to be content with uh, conquering the big areas of, of sin in our lives and bringing them in subjection to the Word of God. And then, be, and then after doing that, after a little while, we become very casual uh, or we begin to overlook some of the smaller areas of sin in our lives. And we become less strict in that. Very often you'll see someone who will begin as a new Christian and just as the children of Israel are conquering the promised land, the, the back of sin is broken in our lives. We make tremendous progress in our lives in terms of defeating these enemies that have held us in, in bondage and kept us from the life that God has for us. And so one enemy after another is broken and broken and broken and broken. And then pretty soon after a while we say, eh, I'm good with this. I'm good with this Christian life. So I'm not going to let the New Testament, you know, dictate what I'm going to uh, become. I'm not going to let Christ-likeness be my standard any longer. 
I'll settle with this. And then after God has broken the backs of all of these big sins in our lives, then we start to say, I'll accommodate these smaller things again. Who wants to be a fanatic, you know? Who wants to be crazy like that? And all? But the problem is, is that the little sins, so-called little sins, have the same goal in our lives as the big ones do. And that is to ultimately grow to a place where they take us into bondage and then they destroy our relationship with God, a spiritual death that they bring, and so often they'll also bring a a physical death. And so we need to continue to grow in every area of uh, uh, of our, until every area of our lives or every area of the flesh is what the Bible calls mortified. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, Paul said, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What Paul is speaking about here is basically he's saying concerning the flesh, the desire of the flesh for sin, he said you need to cold-blooded murder it. The best way is to starve it to death. That's how, how it works, not to feed the thing. And so they, they, we just see this pattern of failure. And it's not, we're not talking about pagans here, something like it, people that don't know God. We're talking about God's people. Chapter 17 The inheritance is now given to the half-tribe of Manasseh that settled in uh, in the land, the the actual promised land. Uh, The other half had been given their portion of the the land on the east side of the Jordan River. And and so this is now a listing uh, down uh, through, uh, uh, all the way down through verse 11, Uh, a listing of the towns and the borders and all of these things related to Manasseh. Now, right in the middle of everything in verse 3, but uh, this guy, Big Z, he was the son of uh, Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh. He had no sons, only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, uh, Mela, Noah, Hogla, uh, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they came near before Eleazar the priest, before Joshua the son of Nun, before the rulers, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. And therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers, Ten shares fell to Manasseh besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which were on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons, and the rest of Manasseh's sons had the land of Gilead. So this takes us back to Numbers chapter 27, where this man died, and he died without any sons. He only had daughters. And so the land that had been promised to him because he had no sons to carry on the name... Um, that land would have then been given to other family members. Well, the daughters said, hey, I mean, we love our dad, we've got our family name here, and we want his, his godly heritage to continue now through the daughters. It shouldn't be right that because he doesn't have a son, that, that, he, that he'll, his family will have a stake of land in the promised land. So they approached Moses and said, hey, what about this? Just because we're gals, what, what's the deal here? Can't we have some land? Moses approached the Lord and the Lord said, absolutely. Give them the, the land that would be given uh, to the family if there were sons. And so the Lord was looking out way, way back. You know, when women were just property, he's looking out for, the, for women there. And he said, no, give them the land. And so all of this time, these daughters have been waiting for, to get into the land. And so we see everybody's kind of, you know, cashing in their little vouchers here uh, to get all of the promises that God had given to them uh, in, in the wandering period. And so the allotment of land was given to them. And then again, the boundaries of the land there in verses 7 through 11. Then we have a failure here again in verse 12. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants 
of those cities, but the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it happened when the children of Israel uh, uh, grew strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor and did not utterly drive them out. And so they didn't drive out the Canaanites because of the strength of, of their resistance. And so just like the Ephraimites, they put them to forced labor and disobeyed God related to that. So it, again, it, this is the picture of the Christian who refuses to obey God's commandment, again, to deal ruthlessly with some area of sin in their life, because it's hard. This is, this is too hard, and the sin doesn't want to easily leave my life. I put my foot down three times, and that sin's still hanging around. Boy, drizzled, vazzled, vazzled, vom. Did you try that? Time for this one to come home. Mr. Wizard. Probably shouldn't use that cartoon. But anyway. Um, God never tells us that the displacement of sin or of our spiritual enemies, the flesh or the desires uh, of the flesh, sin. He never tells us, hey, listen, this is a cinch. It's super easy because it isn't. I fight this crummy flesh every single day. It's one of the reasons I long for heaven. And that'll be done. Never another temptation, never another flare-up of the flesh, never another battle related to the flesh. All of that stuff goes on. And every one of our lives is Christians. But we are still called to obey His Word and to resist these things in our lives until ultimately they give these sins and temptations give way to the weight of God's Word, the power of God's Holy Spirit uh, in, in our lives. We are to continue to engage those sins and those temptations until they realize their place, and that their place is not in our lives. And so as we continue to resist the sin, have faith in God's promises, we appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit, Ultimately, they will give away, give way, but it may take some time, and it may be hard, and it may be dirty, sweaty, difficult, painful work. That's the way warfare is, and we're in a spiritual warfare. But they do give way, but it isn't, it, 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 it isn't always easy. I remember when I was a new Christian, and I assume that my experience in some ways is you know, characteristic of, of if not everybody's experience, then many of our experiences in, in this room. When I became a, a, a new, uh, before I became a Christian, there were any, any one of five or six ways that the devil could have just chosen to kill me with. I mean, just on the basis of my own stupid decisions or just who I am from Adam and Eve and the gene pool and all, things that were just, would be very attractive to my flesh and I could just go for that for five years or twenty years and end up dead. He had a lot of, lot of cards to play related to my life. When I came to know the Lord, the interesting thing is that the Lord took two or three of those areas, boom, just like this, out of my life. Never to be troubled by Him again. I mean, if I wanted to feed those areas in my life, they could become like King Kong tomorrow. But I don't want to feed them. So he comes in and boom, he just goes, whoosh, 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 and those three are gone. The problem is, is he left three or four or five, and I'm just talking about the biggies. We're not going to, I can't tell you about the hundreds that, of, of things, but he leaves this other group. And you think, Lord, it's as easy for you to knock out the rest of them as these three here. Why don't you just, and then I can just buy a lazy boy recliner and just, have people serve me food and candy and stuff like that and uh, become a big, sassy, proud person or whatever. So why don't you do it with everything? And, and the reason that he leaves some things in our life like that is we learn things in the battle. We learn certain things about God when he just supernaturally comes in, baptism of the Holy Spirit, boom, and he knocks those things out. We realize... Only God could have done that. 
You can come to me with anything you want to come to me about talking about the fact that God doesn't exist or deny you know, the Word of God or all these different kinds of things. You are so late for me because of my personal experience with God. Nobody could have done... in This was not psychosomatic or some kind of mind over matter or some kind of a fad of a religious thing that I got into. God came in and did something real and miraculous. It's my story. It's my history. And it's yours too. So I have that. But He leaves things because... Fighting those battles every day against that flesh and the weapons of our warfare keep us close to God in a personal relationship with Him and teaches us things that we wouldn't otherwise know, develop character in our lives that we wouldn't otherwise have, also gives us compassion for people in this world that we wouldn't otherwise have. Well, what's wrong with you? God took all that away from me right when I was born again and, you know, get right or get left, you know, or some kind of... we'd get. Something, But the fact that we still fight with it causes us to be compassionate toward our, our fellow brethren who are in the middle of, of the same battle. So he leaves some of these areas, and I don't need to tell you that on some days, it's hand-to-hand combat. It's war as dirty and as messy and as up close as it gets. And you just go along, and sometimes in the Christian life, you know, you get, God gets, it's just an ebb and flow. Sometimes you, you, you get a block of maybe days or even weeks or months where, like, the warfare is pretty light. It never goes all the way around. This is relatively light. And just when you're about to sit down and begin to write your autobiography, a man of power and faith and victory, an autobiography by Damien Kyle. Just about when, you know, you, you think the bubble is the way it's always going to be, boom, one day, there it is, all of the temptation, all the craziness and its fury, and we're back to fighting things on the basis of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and, and it's, it's nasty and it's difficult and all of that, and we put the manuscript away. <laughs> we got one sentence out. To be continued. <laughs> See me in heaven, you know. But that's the way, that's the way that it works. It, it kind, of, kind of goes uh, uh, like that. And, and so there's always that fight. There's always uh, uh, that battle. And, uh, and so the, we have to realize that and not just say, well, this is hard and because it's hard, it must mean that I'm some kind of a deficient Christian and, 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 I, and I don't have this victory or I will never uh, get this victory. The fact of the matter is that we will and we have to stay at it, walking by faith, using the sword of the Spirit, staying diligent in the battle and, uh, and, and these things will ultimately give way. Sometimes they'll give way fully you know, when we get the new body and we're face to face with the Lord. Then the children, verse 14, the children of Joseph. So it's talking about Ephraim and Manasseh, the two groups that we've just talked about, both of whom have failed in, in taking their, uh, the proper part of uh, uh, the fullness of the land uh, that was given to them. So the children of Joseph, they come to, to Joshua and they said, Why have you given us only one lot? And one share to inheritance, since we are a great people, inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now. So they come to Joshua and say, the allotment of the land that you've given us is too small. We're a great people. I mean, what do you do with people like that? If you're so great, get rid of the Canaanites. You, you aren't great just because you say you're great. You aren't great just because you think you're great or you had a poll among the tribe and everybody thinks they're great or you had some self-esteem training and everybody thinks they're great. You are not great. You haven't even conquered the land that's been given to you. But in their minds, the amount of land that's been given them, way too small, we are a great people, and so we need to be given more land. And so the Ephraimites, as we're going to see uh, on really through the book of Judges and, and all, they, that tribe, uh, they are, were notorious uh, complainers. So they're complaining against 
the piece of land that's been given to them. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem is, is that piece of land was not given to them by Joshua. It was given to them by Lot. God gave them that piece of land. And he gave them that piece of land very deliberately with wisdom. That was where they were supposed to uh, be and to conquer. And probably God put them in that place. It's a wonderful piece of land. If you go to Israel today and, and see it, and, and God probably knew that all of this was inside of them, and so they were in the middle of a test that, that they were failing. Joshua's response is a very interesting one. It's really a study in leadership. Joshua answered them, and he said, if, so he, the, uh, he's not quite willing to agree with the fact that they are great people. So, He's very diplomatic. He said, if you are a great people, then go up to the forest country, clear the place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and the giants, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. So conquer the land that you have, and then there's plenty of land over here you can uh, take care of, but you're going to have to knock out a few giants to be able to do that, and it'll involve a little bit of, of, of difficulty. So you say you're a great people, you think you're a great people, but now you need to prove it by doing something great. And, and that's, that's how greatness is ascribed to, to a person. You need to do something to be great. You're not great just by thinking that, that you're great. It's something that is actually earned. And so you go in there, defeat enemies in another part of the land, and then you can have that, that land too. And, and so you want to demonstrate your greatness, demonstrate it by being faithful to the lot of land that God has given to you. Now they immediately respond in verse 16 with a series of excuses. And I remember... I assume everybody has heard this in their lifetime, but it's a good thing to hear. Uh, the old saying that a person who is good at excuses is rarely good at anything else. And that's true. That is true. There are some people, I remember when I, where I worked at a certain place, and there were some, if they had given half the time on the job uh, to just doing their job that they did to formulating excuses for not doing their job, uh, they would have been stars in, in, in terms of the workplace, but they weren't. They were excuse makers, and uh, there's a bit of this among these two tribes. And so the children of Joseph said, they said, the mountain country is not enough for us. And, and, and all the Canaanites who dwell in the land uh, of the valley, they have chariots of iron, both those who are at Beth Shean and its towns and those who are of the valley uh, of Jezreel. And, and so they said, yeah, well, you're telling us to take more land, but that's going to be hard. Those are, those are mean, hard people that are in those, those sections. Of the, they just want something given to them. They, just want, to, they, just want, they, they want something to be given to them, by other people that did all the, whole, all the hard work, and then they wanted to, to take the title of greatness as a result of it. And, and so uh, Joshua uh, looks at it, and, and again, very, a, a, a picture of diplomacy. And so he spoke to the house of Joseph, and he said to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a great people, and shall have great power. You shall not have only one lot. You are, and, he, and he's, he's, he is informing them of, he's trying to build their faith up. And he's saying, you really are a great people. The potential is there and, and, and all. But it's potential that you have to act out on. And, and so you have great power. You shouldn't only have one lot, but the mountain country shall be yours. Even though it's wooded, you shall cut it down, and its furthest extent shall be yours, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. And so he tells them, he doesn't allow them to manipulate him with their, their complaining and all of their excuses and, and all. He, he stays on message here and, and he lets them know that, no, that you can do this thing. There is a way to prove your greatness here, and, uh, but this is what you need to do. So we get a chance to see a little bit here that not all 12 tribes of Israel were created equal, so to speak, or they weren't equal in terms of their character. So when the 12 tribes came together and they 
um, conquered the enemies in the land and, and, and they accomplished the general conquest of the land. Um, there, there are obviously certain tribes who took a stronger lead in that happening and other tribes who kind of followed. Now as these individual tribes are being given their own land, we're now starting to see the character or the lack of character in individual uh, trials and, so, and, and the different things that are challenges that are being put uh, in, in front of them. And so uh, this, is, this is where these, these people were. And uh, it's the same kind of thing that happens sometimes in the body of Christ today where uh, sometimes a person will want some great position in the body of Christ, but they don't want to fight the battles that are required to develop the character, to take that place, or to be considered, you know, great, so to speak, to, have, to earn that position. They want something given to them before they prove themselves faithful. And, and one of the things that Jesus will never do, he, he gives more to people who are already faithful in the smaller thing that they're doing. He never gives more to someone who's being faithless in the smaller thing. And so to think that God will do that is to be self-deceived. And so the, the same thing parallels related to uh, uh, the New Testament. Uh, let me just uh, look right here. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Chapter 18. Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh, and they set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. So Joshua now moves the capital, so to speak, of Israel from Gilgal. He takes the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, all of that, moves it to Shiloh. It's a good move. God obviously directed it because um, now it's going... Shiloh is more central in the land of Israel, giving people greater access to go to the tabernacle, to worship the Lord on the feast days and all these kind of things. And so it gets moved to the area of, of Shiloh and, uh, and the worship of the Lord for the nation of Israel will remain uh, centered in Shiloh for a period of about 300 years until King David comes on the scene conquers the Jebusites and the city of Jerusalem and that ultimately becomes the center for the worship of the Lord. He brought the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle uh, to that place. And so, but it helps us to realize long period of time Shiloh was the, the uh, spiritual and the administrative center uh, for the nation of Israel. But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. And so seven out of these nine and a half tribes, uh, they hadn't come to Joshua yet and said, hey, what about our land? And uh, what about our inheritance? You're giving the inheritance to everybody else. And so they weren't uh, clamoring for that. And so then Joshua said to the children of Israel, how long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving, uh, your, the, which the Lord God of your fathers has given to you. And so he rebukes them because of their uh, delay or their lack of enthusiasm for receiving their part of the land. It's interesting that uh, this fault, it's a fault on their part, and what he faults them for in verse 3 is a neglect to go up and to take possession uh, of the land that the Lord has given to them. In fact, they're so neglectful that they haven't even taken enough initiative to find out what part of the land belongs to them. And so he rebukes them for their neglect. The old King James really has it better than the new King James. He, the old King James says, how long will you be slack? So in, in the old days, we would talk about people slacking off. They're, they're being neglectful. They're being lazy. Today, in more modern times, we talk about people, the culture talks about people being slackers. They're lazy. Well, they're being spiritual slackers here at, at this time. God has given them promises, given them land, and they don't have enough, again, want to, to even know what the land is, to even begin to enter in, into the battle. So they're not showing enough initiative. And so Joshua really rebukes them for it. Another way of... of of translating this word neglect, it means to be relaxed. <laughs> they were a little too relaxed about God's plan for their lives. 
And so uh, Joshua wakes them up to the fact that you guys need to get going on, uh, on fulfilling God's call upon your life. And so he said, pick out from among you three men of each tribe. Uh, so you've got seven tribes left, a total of 21 men. And I will send them. They will rise, go out throughout the rest of the land that hasn't been given to other tribes, survey it according to their inheritance, and they'll come back to me. And this survey crew shall divide it into seven parts, and Judah shall remain in their territory in the south, and the house of Joseph shall remain in their territory to the north. In other words, these tri that land had already been allocated and you shall therefore survey the land in seven parts. Bring the survey to me and that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord your God. Uh, Josephus uh, speaks to us, a Jewish historian, of the fact that you say, well, wow, I mean, we got uh, the nation of Israel wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. Where'd they get a survey crew? These people were slaves in Egypt. When you were a slave in the ancient world, it doesn't mean that you just dug uh, ditches. You could be a doctor, you could be a, a chemist, you could be a mathematician, you could be, they would just look and see an aptitude in your life, they would get you the training and then make money off of you in white collar uh, slave labor, it wasn't all blue collar. So you had people who were skilled in mathematics, they were skilled in survey, they were skilled in uh, topographical kind of uh, surveying of the land, and, and this had apparently been handed down from one generation to the other. They found these kind of people, they went out and they surveyed the land uh, in this way to bring it back, what's a nice way of dividing up these seven, this remaining land into seven parts. But Joshua didn't say, you bring it back to me, and then in all of our wisdom we'll divide it out. The seven divisions were brought back, but God was to then give each one their portion. But the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood uh, of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan on the east, which uh, Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. And then the men rose to go away, and so they obeyed Joshua. He charged them who went out to survey the land, saying, Go, walk through the land, survey it, come back to me that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. And so the men went, passed through the land, and wrote the survey in a book in seven parts by cities. They brought it back to Joshua in Shiloh, and then Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord, and there Joshua divided the land to the children of Israel according to their divisions. And as we get now here to uh, verse 11, we have uh, the allotment that went to the ch tribe of uh, the children of uh, Benjamin. And so they came up according to their families and the territory uh, of their lot came out between the children uh, of Judah and the children of Joseph. And so uh, again, if we pull the map up there, uh, we can see where the tribe of Benjamin was located there uh, in the south. Benjamin will produce Saul, the first king of Israel. And then uh, the remainder from there all the way through to through verse 28, it lists the borders and the cities that were given to them. In chapter 19, the second lot uh, came out for Simeon. And uh, these uh, verses here lay out uh, the inheritance that was given to them, the borders of the land, the cities that were given to them there uh, in, in that land. And again, as I mentioned, Simeon will kind of disappear because of future decision-making. But that's where they began uh, in, in the inheritance. And then in verse 10, the third lot came out for the children of Zebulun. And uh, you notice where it is that, that they're located uh, in, in the land. And on through verse 16, the listing of the boundaries and the cities that were given to them. It's interesting to notice there in verse 15, it, it mentions uh, Bethlehem there. And, um, but the Bethlehem that Jesus was born in, Bethlehem Ephratah, the, uh, this is a different Bethlehem. So when you read Micah's prophecy, it talks about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem uh, Ephratah or whatever it is there. It's talking, that attachment was given to it to differentiate it from this Bethlehem that also was, was in the land. Jesus was not going to be born in the, in the region of Zebulun, was going to be born in, in Bethlehem by uh, Jerusalem. The fourth lot, verse 17, came out to Issachar and uh, 
The, through verse 23, the boundaries in the cities given to them. The fifth lot, verse 24, came out for the tribe of the children of Asher according to their families. And on verse 31, it lists the cities that were given to them and, and the boundaries. Verse 32, the same, the sixth lot came out to the children of Naphtali. And they're located also with, with Asher way up in, in the north. The, the specifics of their boundaries are given all the way through verse 39. And then in verse 40, the seventh lot came out uh, for the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families. And so uh, all of that is listed for us and, and the boundaries of all of that uh, there through uh, verse uh, 48. And so the tribe of Dan, we've got a beautiful place in the land of Israel, includes modern-day Joppa, which was a major seaport for the children of Israel, a section of land right on the Mediterranean. So if you like Mediterranean living, Dan got some you know, beautiful uh, land. And then in verse 49, the special inheritance excuse me, that was given to Joshua and the, uh, the request that he made of the children of Israel of a piece of land to be given to him. And uh, so he makes this request. They'd have probably given him anything that he asked for. Uh, but when he had made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance according to their borders, uh, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua. So he made sure everybody else was taken care of. He came on the scene and he uh, apparently requested and the Lord was all for uh, giving him the city which he asked for, Timnath, Sarah, and the mountains of Ephraim. And he built the city and he dwelt in it. So it's interesting. Remember, he scolded. the. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. So when he's talking to the tribe of Ephraim and say, you people say you're great, but you haven't done anything great. But I know you're great. I know it's in you. Uh, he came from that tribe. So he's, that's probably why they took his, his rebuke as well as they, they took it. But then he comes into the middle of their land, takes, again, one of the hardest places to conquer in their land, and like Caleb, he conquers it. This is one thing to say, you're a great people, you need to obey God, you can obey God, God will be faithful to bless you as you obey Him. Joshua said, it's not enough just to be able to say that as a leader, I need them to see that practically in my life. And so he goes in and he does the very thing that he said God would do for them. God does it through him, and so he's giving them, them hope. And this, these were the inheritances which Eliezer the priest Joshua the son of Nun, the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel, divided his inheritance by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so they made an end of dividing the country. And so now we come to a place in the book of Joshua and in the history of, of the nation of Israel where the general conquest of the land has taken place. It's now been allocated to the individual tribes. It's their responsibility to mop up kind of the final enemies within, uh, within the land. And we see that some of them were more or less faithful in, uh, in doing that, and God took note of it. So we'll stop there tonight and pick things up in, in verse 20. Let's stand together, and if the worship team come forward, that'd be great.